Hey everyone, welcome back to uh, a Monday open space. Uh, as always, you've got to let me know if I exist. Collapse the wave function. Prove to me that, uh, that this is all real. It's all I require. Some kind of external validation of my existence. There we go. Somebody has confirmed my existence. So I can, uh, we can, we can proceed. So in case you're wondering what it is that you've stumbled into, uh, this is my Monday open space and it is just a live for live free form, no, uh, plan conversation with you guys. So, uh, whatever you want to talk about any, uh, whatever you want to talk about, um, uh, you want to talk about what happened uh, in Hawaii? You want to talk about Starlink? Um, by all means, uh, we can get into it. Um, some of you might know that I uh, fired up the telescope last night. We're back in business, baby. Um, this is, of course, the really cool telescope that was put together by our good friends at Oceanside Photo and Telescope. Uh, and it is a phenomenal piece of equipment. So I'll share a couple of pictures with you right now, just so you can see uh, what we're able to do. Now, these were just tests. The weather is last night, the you know, it was clear, but there was a full moon. And so we got or almost full moon just past a full moon. So we had pretty bad light pollution in the telescope. But I thought I would just share uh, some shots with you. So um, let's see if you can see this. Yeah, so this is the shot that I took of of Pleiades. And this is like a 30 second exposure of Pleiades. So you can really see the the nebulosity around the stars, which is pretty amazing. Um, and then we've got, let me see if I can zoom this a little better here. Yeah, okay. So that's Orion, of course, which, uh, which worked out pretty well. Um, Orion's a really tough object to image because you've got this uh, this really bright central core, and then you've got sort of the rest of this really cool nebulosity around it. It's such a so you can either sort of overexpose the core and get some of this fainter nebulosity around it, or you can um, kind of oh, you can really. You can sort of really dim out <clears throat> the core or try to reveal some parts of the core. But yeah, and that was, again, that was like maybe a 30 second exposure. Anyway, we were going fast. So um, I'm, uh, I'm pretty impressed. So uh, anticipate, if you want to sort of see some of my experiments and hang out with me, follow me on Twitch, uh, twitch.tv slash um, uh, F. Kane, and if you want to uh, join me, uh, yeah, if you want to uh, join, and then once I'm happy with the way this is all functioning, and definitely during uh, darker sky times when the moon is gone, we'll do some actual star parties here on the channel. Like, for example, having we'll have some special guests, some some people who are expert astrophotographers who can help me get more out of this system uh, maybe some celebrities who are super into astrophotography but have never had access to a to a, a telescope this fast and this powerful um so uh yeah so stay tuned 
but we're but we're back. So I'm I'm pretty excited. So the star parties are are finally I hope coming back. All right, so uh, that's the sort of the first thing. Second thing, of course, people are asking me how the AAS went, and it was great. We had a really good time. Um, this was the American Astronomical Society meeting in Hawaii, and we were there. Chad and I were there from the 2nd until the 8th. Actually, we tried to leave on Wednesday night, and we, you know, at the airport, and our airplane was getting ready to go. And then... Um, the airplane, uh, you know, went onto the runway and accelerated and then slammed on the brakes. And it's a very unnerving experience to be on an airplane when, when it goes to that whole, you know, that really familiar, you sort of push back into your seat you feel that acceleration. And then suddenly for it to do the opposite, slam on the brakes hard. <laughs> and you're like, are we going to be able to make it to the end of the runway? And so the airplane came back. Uh, came back into the terminal. Um, they had to replace some part on the airplane. Apparently some warning light went off as the airplane was trying to take off. And so they replaced the part and then they did the whole thing again. And apparently it didn't work. Um, so they brought us back to the airport. Everybody had to leave the plane. They put us up in a hotel for the day. And this, you know, by the time from when we got onto the airplane to when we finally got to our hotel room, we'd been, you know, 12 hours, 10 hours. It was pretty rough. Um, and so we, although we had a really nice hotel uh, in Honolulu, we just slept for most of the day. And then we got on the next airplane that night and we did make it home. So um, uh, let's see. So I mentioned in the video that you saw, uh, we talked a bit about, you might've seen, I posted a video with Chad about some of the people that we met. Um, so we recorded two long conversations, one with David Kipping and one with Adam Frank. The David Kipping one, the patrons have already seen this but the, it comes out tomorrow. Uh, we've got two guest QAs, one with Ethan Siegel, which I think you all saw, and we had uh, a guest with um, Jeff Faust, who is one of the best space news reporters out there. He's, he's been doing the job longer than I have. Uh, he's just he's, he's a really knowledgeable reporter. And so he answered all your questions, which was a lot of fun. And then we also tracked down about 10 uh, guest QA answerers. And so we just found individual people who had knowledge in different topics. And, and uh, I threw one of your questions at them. So uh, those will trickle out over the next 10 weeks of, of question shows. Also got a chance to interview... Uh, people behind the new great observatories. So Louvoir, um, Habex, uh, Origins, and Lynx. And so now we're going to work on fairly comprehensive uh, stories on each one of those, uh, comprehensive videos on each one of those missions. So to really expand because they've done a lot more work in figuring out what's going to be in these missions, how they're going to work. They've got a lot more cool graphics. So, uh, so again, stay tuned for, for all of that. I, I didn't mispronounce Honolulu. I just have a Canadian accent. Absolutely. I blame everything that I do wrong on my hilarious Canadian accent. All right, uh, let's get into your questions if you have such a thing. So Recycled asks, could, can we make a giant telescope out of smaller telescopes and send them into space? And if so, why don't we do it? All right, so there's actually, I mean, we can, and there's some interesting ways that you can do this. So there's two ways that you can make two telescopes work together. The 
the sort of the simple brute force method is essentially if you have two telescopes, right? You take one eight inch telescope and then you take a second eight inch telescope and you have them observe the same part of the sky and then you take their photographs, you can merge those two images together and you can remove a bit of noise and a bit of, of issues. And it's essentially the equivalent of you having a telescope that is twice the size of, of one telescope. So two Hubble Space Telescopes, they could be working together. It would be as if you had two Hubble Space Telescopes. If you launch 10 Hubble Space Telescopes and they all work together, then you have the equivalent of 10 Hubble Space Telescopes. And there's definitely value in that. But then when you think about how complicated, you know, does it make more sense to just launch a bit bigger telescope that gives you the equivalent mirror size of a bigger telescope? Or do you actually launch two separate spacecraft that are uh, looking in the same direction? And there was a recent proposal, we actually did a video on this uh, several months back about these inflatable bubble telescopes. And they work by that principle. So, so there you just, you have 50 different telescopes, each one fits flattened into a launch fairing, and then they fly off to space and they inflate, and then they all just are in formation and they act like one telescope that is the equivalent of the total amount of surface area of all of those telescopes. But the other thing that you can do, which is cooler, is this idea of interferometry, where you have two telescopes that are separated, they're looking at the same object. And because of a trick of the way light works, they can act like a single telescope, the size of the distance between those two telescopes. So if you take one Hubble Space Telescope, and you have it at one location, and then you launch a second Hubble Space Telescope, and it's 100 meters away, those two telescopes will act like one telescope that is 100 meters across. But the challenge is uh, you have to line up those two telescopes so that essentially the individual photon, the same photon is, so the same wave front is landing on both of those telescopes at the same time. And with radio waves, that's reasonably straightforward to do. And this was the idea behind the Event Horizon Telescope. Astronomers took this, um, uh, telescopes around the world, one in Antarctica and one in Greenland and one in Europe and one in, you know, Asia and Australia. And they, they, they took images at the same time of the supermassive black hole at the heart of the Milky Way and the heart of M87. And then they had clocks connected to each one of these telescopes so that they, they were able to align the data perfectly to the nanosecond, right? The femtosecond. And then they were able to merge the um, the the data together in computers after the fact by lining up all the the data that was coming in to make a telescope the size of planet Earth, and so. But the problem is that if you want to do that in other wavelengths, say in infrared or visible light, you've got to be able to align your telescopes that carefully, and there are plans in the works to maybe do this, but. Um, but for now, uh, there are no interferometers flying in space and there are not even any combined, I don't know what the technical term is, but combined telescope area as well. In general, you just build one telescope and you launch it. Chimpy726, why don't we make a magnetic field around, you like that name? Is that, you found funny? Oh, okay. 
Uh, why don't we make a magnetic field around the ISS to protect it from solar radiation? So what you're describing is, is this idea of an artificial magnetosphere. The Earth has a magnetosphere that protects us down here on Earth by from the cosmic rays and the energetic particles that are coming from the sun. And it does a beautiful job, right? Life wouldn't really be able to thrive in the same way without the magnetosphere and the thick atmosphere, the two working together. And this thought has occurred to NASA. <laughs> like, like, why should we let our astronauts? Now, it's not such a bad deal with the International Space Station because it is actually orbiting so low that it is under the protective magnetosphere, just like the us down here on Earth. They have more, um, they experience more radiation, but not as much as if you were out in space, out orbiting the moon. And so they've absolutely been trying to figure this out. NASA has time and time again, and so has the European Space Agency, tried to figure out a way that you could generate an artificial magnetic field that would protect the astronauts from cosmic rays and, and radiation from the sun. And the problem has been that it's to able, you know, the amount of electricity that you need to run to create this magnetosphere is too much. It requires too much hardware, too much, um, uh, just too much equipment for the value. It's it would be, it's still based on our current technology, just cheaper to surround the thing in say water, just launch up a bunch of water, in, you know have a layer of water that surrounds the entire spacecraft. That is cheaper, and then you get to drink the water. So then to to actually try to build some sort of artificial magnetosphere. But I see a new attempt at this every couple of years. Someone's got a new idea for this, and maybe someday someone will be able to figure it out. Um, Neptune the Mystic. Um, Tess was predicted to discover 20,000 exoplanets with six months of its initial mission to go. It has discovered 37. It's nothing compared to Kepler. Should we reconsider, should we consider resurrecting Kepler? No, Tess, Tess has just begun. The number of planets that Tess is going to find, the number of confirmed exoplanets is only at 37, but you have to consider what is involved in finding a confirmed exoplanet within a year, right? And you've got to find planets that orbit their star very rapidly, rapidly enough that Tess can see one and then see it again. Tess is looking in one area and then it turns its gaze to another area and then it turns its gaze to another area. So the only planets that it's going to be able to find are the ones that, that are orbiting rapidly enough for it to be able to make repeat observations. But over time, it's going to be coming back and looking again and then looking again and looking again and over the years. It's expected that Tess will find, again, tens of thousands of candidate exoplanets. And Tess is a tiny mission compared to Kepler. Tess is a couple of hundred million dollars while Kepler was in the, uh, you know, in, in the billion range. Kepler was a really big, really expensive telescope compared to what Tess is. Tess is Tesla's done on a shoestring. And so to be able to find 10,000 plus planets around us, including some Earth-sized planets orbiting sun-like stars, is pretty exciting and totally worth the investment. I'm sure people would love to have uh, another Kepler, but there's a whole bunch of new telescopes coming out which are going to be able to do the same thing and more. Um, 
There's the Cheops mission, which is already launched, which is not going to be finding new planets, but it's going to be characterizing existing exoplanets incredibly well. There's the Ariel mission. There's the Plato mission. So there's a the European Space Agency alone is planning three planet hunting missions just in the next decade. Plus, uh, NASA has got their their uh, Habex mission. So I think we're going to find. You know, the days of needing something like Kepler are, are, you know, it was a it was a moment. It was the right tool for the job at the at the right time. But now there's a lot of new tools that are going to be finding planets. And then, of course, the the, the big telescopes, the extremely large telescope, the giant Magellan telescope. These things will be able to directly observe exoplanets without having to follow the transit method or the radial velocity method. So it's a whole other uh, it's a whole other world. Arca Tufus. Uh, can we have access to your raw telescope image data? Yeah, I will definitely make all of the raw fits files that I'm taking with the telescope publicly available. And then you can all just um, download them and, uh, and enjoy. So uh, yeah, no question once I figure that out. Uh, Corbin Ariti, has your opinion changed on the Fermi paradox in thinking that we're the only intelligent life in the observable universe? So I think people got the impression based on the conversation that I had with Adam Frank that that I now think that that the difficulty in exploring star to star means that maybe that's a good explanation for the Fermi paradox. And no, I I am still I mean, I find that argument interesting, but I am unconvinced that uh, that it really answers the question. I mean, it was super interesting to see the simulations that they had done, and it would take into account this idea that you know that a civilization could could last ten thousand years and still not be visible, that they would be moving from star to star, and that gaps would be opening up, and and stars could sort of fall off of the you know, slip into the boondocks of the of any um, part of the galaxy. And yet, I don't know, it just it just doesn't feel to me like Oumuamua made the journey a rock from another solar system made the journey. So it feels to me like a spacecraft that was sent purposefully in that direction could do it. And when you think about the possibility of a self replicating robot, give self replicating robots a few decades, and they could just turn the entire moon into, I don't know, some ornately sculpted thing that would be really obvious. So I'm I'm not convinced, but it was an absolutely fascinating conversation. So I hope you guys enjoyed it. And the conversation that I had with David Kipping, I mean, you can see that, that comes tomorrow. And you can see it's the same thing, which is like, he's not convinced that there are aliens anywhere. But, but it but you need to look, you need to think about every argument that is brought up to say, uh, is it possible, right? I mean, that's, I think that's the only honest way to approach things that you think you know, is to say how, you know, what are the ways that I could be wrong, right? Um, Southern scientists, any chance you do a video with Saul Perlmutter? I would love to. I actually met Saul Perlmutter. For those of you who don't know, he is one of the discoverers of dark energy. And I met him at a conference and got a chance to chat with him for a while. I was, I was a fly on a wall of a conversation with him and a bunch of other 
Nobel Prize winners about the nature of time. And I, I didn't understand a word they were talking about, but it was just, I was so grateful to be there and to be a part of it. So, um, Ben Kahlo, uh, can you explain how type 1A supernova are formed and why they emit standard candle energy? I don't get it. Sure. So a type 1A supernova, this is a very special kind of supernova that is formed from a white dwarf that is feeding on material from a companion star. And they're the they're actually the cause of novas as well. So you've got this white dwarf and then you've got this companion star and the, and the star is orbiting around it. And the white dwarf is already a degenerate compact object. So it's already very dense. And then this stellar material is falling onto the star and piling up like snow on the surface of the star. And then after a while, this material is so dense, it gets so hot, and then it flashes off of the surface of the star. And we get this idea of a nova. And then and then that it sort of clears up the material and then more material falls down on it and then you get another nova. But some of the material remains on the star and that star gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And so the theory goes that when the star reaches 1.4 times the mass of the sun, that's essentially the most massive that a white dwarf can be. And then it collapses and explodes as a supernova at that moment when it re reaches this magical 1.4 times the mass of the sun. And so because astronomers know how much mass was in this white dwarf when it collapsed, they know how much energy intrinsically there should be coming off of this thing. And so when you see a type 1a supernova, which gives us a very specific chemical signature, you then know how much energy was released by it and then you look at how bright it is and then that tells you how far away it is and that's why they're valuable as standard candles um wow there's a bunch of people on twitch cool i should be watching the twitch uh stream as well um all right so brock roberts is new horizons targeted for another flyby of another object uh, there are, is no specific target selected for New Horizons yet, but the last talk, time I talked to uh, Alan Stern and the group, um, they, they're still fuel in the tank, so they still have the capability to do another flyby. And the timing is really good. The, the Vera Rubin Observatory, previously known as the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope, will be coming online and seeing first light sometime next year. And that's going to be a, just the perfect instrument to be able to find brand new Kuiper Belt objects um, out in the, uh, you know, f that are in the same trajectory as New Horizons. And so in theory, they could do another flyby of another object and maybe even another flyby after that. So, so there, there's capacity. There's enough uh, electricity coming from from its um, you know from its RTG. There's enough propellant to be able to make a, a course correction to be able to put it on track with another flyby. It's just a matter of of finding a, a target, and it's so far away now that it's just harder and harder to find new targets for it to uh, to go after. Um, 
horrible hog on Twitch. So we see old light, right? How can we detect life if we're seeing the past? Yeah, absolutely. When we look out into the universe and we see things, we are seeing them as they looked in the past. We are seeing um, uh, Alpha Centauri as it looked four years ago. We're seeing the center of the Milky Way as it looked 22,000 years ago. We're seeing Andromeda as it looked uh, two and a half million years ago. But when you think about, say, just really close to us, like how long has life been on planet Earth for 500 million years, for like complex life that's been pumping out oxygen into the atmosphere. And so 500 million years, that's really far away. Uh, you know, most of the galaxies that you've ever seen a picture of, they're closer than 500 million light years away you, you they get pretty small when they're that far away so to even just detect life any star system in the entire milky way would be looking at us like the worst case scenario they're on the other side of the galaxy they're seeing us you know a hundred thousand years ago well so there was life on earth a hundred thousand years ago there was uh, there was even human beings 100,000 years ago. So now there weren't factories and there wasn't pollution and there weren't cities. For that, you would need to be, say, within 200 light years to be able to see evidence of human civilization on the planet Earth. But 200 light years, there's actually a lot of stars contained within a sphere 200 light years across. So, um, so we are looking in the past, but still, even looking in the past, uh, there's a lot of space to cover and and we could expand even and even if we see life that is in the past like even if we know that we're looking at life on some planet and it's a billion years ago that's still really interesting right just as interesting as it is because it tells us like how common was life a billion years ago in the universe like these these are still important questions to ask and in many ways not being able to see life as it is today is still fascinating. So uh, there's no reason not to look. Um, Matthew Black Fraser, do you know of any serious proposals for a new and larger than Hubble visible light space telescope? Do I ever? Um, in fact, we've done uh, one video on this already. And and we're going to do another video on this shortly. But the the telescope is called Louvoir, the large ultraviolet optical infrared telescope. And I'm sure it'll get a, another name as it gets closer. Uh, but right now it is considered to be the successor to the Hubble Space Telescope. And in fact, while I was at this American Astronomical Society meeting, they had um, two, they sort of went into a lot more detail about the Louvoir Telescope. So imagine they have two plans, there's Louvoir A and Louvoir B. And Louvoir A is a 15 meter telescope. So imagine something, you know, with James Webb being 6.5 meters, imagine a 15 meter telescope. Uh, Hubble is 2.6 meters. So this is a big telescope. Um, and then they also had a plan for a nine meter telescope if they had to have a lower budget. But I want the 15 meter one. And it'll be a monster. It will be able to essentially take pictures of almost every object in the solar system that are as good as the pictures taken by the spacecraft that were sent to visit them. So you could get a picture of Ceres or you could get a picture of Pluto 
as good as New Horizons took. You get a picture of Europa as good as the Voyagers took, or you get a picture of Enceladus as good as Cassini took, but from this, from Earth. So not to mention directly observing exoplanets, not to mention seeing galaxies and stars as they're first forming at the very edge of the universe. So it is a really, really exciting idea. And uh, we recorded some interviews with some of the people working on it, and we will absolutely be uh, giving you an update on, on what's happening with, with Louvoir, as well as the other great observatory concepts. Lynx, which is a next generation X-ray telescope. Habex, which is a specifically planet hunting, uh, habitable planet hunting telescope. And then Origins, which is going to be a successor to the James Webb, which will take do what James Webb does, but do it even better. So. So stay tuned on, on that. Uh, Louvoir right now is going to be a NASA observatory, but in the way these works, you would sort of expect it to become uh, a probably a collaboration between the European Space Agency and NASA and probably the Canadians, and I'm sure the Japanese will throw in some instruments. So that's the way these tend to go because they're just so big and so complicated. Uh, Veronica Cure, did you see any spectacular images at AAS? Not really. Um, there was a couple of really cool. So at every AAS, there's often some big posters, just like some big mosaics that they have. And there was one image that was done of from W first, they did a simulation to show you what it will show and sort of these beautiful star fields. And it was this essentially zooming in on just one little piece of Andromeda. And yet there was millions of stars that were going to be in the image. And the other one, there was a new image that came out from Sophia, which is NASA's airborne observatory, the one that's on the airplane, you know, pointing out the side of the airplane. And they had uh, really cool, beautiful images of the core of the Milky Way. But um, yeah, they don't really. Um, it's it's hard to explain what it's like to be at one of these conferences. Thirty five hundred people. Everybody is sort of sequestered into these rooms, um, sort of giving talks about their latest research, and a lot of it is in graphs and math and not really pretty pictures. And then all of the press releases that come out, out to the public, often they'll release images that have really nice pictures like this. Uh, they were calling it the Godzilla galaxy, which was just this galaxy that had 10 times the mass of the Milky Way and yet still, or two and a half times the mass of the Milky Way and 10 times the stars, but still had a really nice spiral structure, like over a trillion stars. Anyway, uh, really cool. So. Uh, the the part that I just really enjoy about these kinds of conferences is just getting a chance to talk to the astronomers directly. You know, you, you're like, who are you? What do you work on? I mean, I, I was insufferable <laughs> talking to people and asking what they work on and trying to get scoops and find out information. So um, Ludicium Infernalum, uh, Origins even better than James Webb. How many meters do they plan Origins to be? I think Origins is planned to be a nine meter telescope. So, but it will do some other things that James Webb can't do. Like it will be cooled down in the same way that Spitzer was. So James Webb is cooled down, but not really, really cooled down. And so there's sort of a limit how far away James Webb can see, while Origins will be cooled down to just above the background temperature of the universe. And that will be cold enough for it to be able to observe pretty much anything. 
uh, Zappen Zappen, how many posters did I read? So the posters, if you aren't aware of this, the posters are, they have these rooms where people present their research in poster form and you walk along, you're sort of like browsing, I don't know, like a, like a grocery store where, where you look at each person's research. And then at certain times of the day, the researchers will actually come and stand beside their posters so you can ask them a bunch of questions. And, and I love that, like, because there's stuff that, that I know you want to know about, but for whatever reason, they're, they're, you know, they don't work with a university that has a public relations department. And so no one is helping them get the word out of what they're working on. And so one of the most interesting ones was, a, I was talking to a, uh, undergraduate who had done the math on, on what it would take to make the event horizon telescope be how much better could you make it with satellites? And she estimated that if you had three, three meter radio telescopes that that joined the event horizon telescope, we could then observe the supermassive black holes at the hearts of dozens of galaxies. So we could see dozens of supermassive black holes, but with just a couple of fairly reasonable small space telescopes. And she had done all the math and had done simulations for what these new black hole images and resolution would be. And like, I've never seen that, right? I haven't seen that as anyone's talked about that. So um, that I found that part really interesting. And that's the part that I like the best. Like there's a, there's a deluge of news that comes from these conferences and I tend to avoid that. I think I attended one press conference the whole time that I was there. I just spent all my time trying to get scoops, trying to talk to people, trying to interview people, trying to just understand the cool stuff that's going on and less time um, reprinting the press releases. And so I would have the team back here, like all of the writers for Universe Today, I just let them report on that. So, and I focused on other stuff that, that we wouldn't find anywhere but there. So um, I'm still... I, I'm not sure if I want, I'm going to be able to attend the next one. The next one's in Madison uh, in the summertime and still trying to figure out, you know, Chad and I are still trying to decide like, like for all the work that we did and all the time that we spent, was it worth the expense? Because it is very expensive, right? Let's like flights to Hawaii for me and Chad, hotel for a week, all the food, transportation, and and any other gear upgrades that we needed to buy and a week of my time that I wasn't able to do other things and a week of Chad's time that he wasn't able to do other things. So if you add all that together, is it worth the value that we got for all the cool interviews and the networking that we did and, and all, and all the, the stuff that we learned and the jury's kind of out right now. I'm, I'm leaning towards no is my, is my feeling right now, but but I've got some, uh, you know, I've, I've got some other ideas that I want to try. I mean, I think the, what I would love to do, like Chad and I work really well together. Like, like we absolutely don't get on each other's, uh, you know, nerves, which is great. Um, and so we're thinking like, it'd be cool to like do like a road trip where we go and visit, say, LIGO and I don't know, some cool telescopes and do some cool interviews with some of the people behind the scenes, but also see some of these instruments and experiments and, and things like that on site, which 
you know, at the AAS, you've just got the people there. You don't have their telescopes. And so you don't get that same connection to what it is that they're working on. So anyway, still figuring it out. Felix Kwatke, has any author, scientific, philosophical, considered the idea that Earth could be the most advanced civilization in the whole universe? Absolutely. Uh, this is one of the explanations for the Fermi paradox, right? This idea that the universe is big and old and life formed as quickly as it could here on Earth. And so an Earth arrived fairly late in the history of the universe. And so why aren't there aliens everywhere. And as you think about how aliens could be um, moving from star to star, and you know, the, our last video was all about this. Um, it seems super weird that that we have no evidence whatsoever at all of any aliens civilization anywhere but here, or, you know, no, no advanced civilization anywhere but here on Earth. And one of the possibilities, the one that I find the most interesting is the, or the most compelling is that we're alone, that we're either alone or that we're the first. And it seems weird that we're the first. It seems more likely that we're alone than we're the first. Because if there's like lots and lots of alien civilizations all in a race, and yet we happen to be ahead by a couple of hundred years, that seems weird to me. But you know, the fact that we that there's something special that happened to go from non life to life here on Earth, we don't know how often how common that is. So, so from my perspective, it I do feel like we are alone. I don't think that we're necessary. It doesn't feel to me like we're the first, but I guess if we are alone, then we are the first. Uh, Dwayne Duval, when is the next decadal survey? So we are just around the corner for the next decadal survey. These are the this is a survey that the US science community goes through every 10 years where they all come together, they define what the big unanswered scientific questions that they're trying to solve are, they pass these big questions along to NASA, the National Science Foundation, and that that sets that defines what the the next big instruments, observatories, telescopes, missions are going to be for the next decade. And then 10 years later, they all come together and they do it again. And so a lot of the instruments that you're familiar with Hubble, James Webb, uh, Kepler, uh, these are all the result of previous decadal surveys. And so now the new decadal survey, they're figuring out what the missions are, the planetary missions, as well as the the astronomy and astrophysics missions. And that's why these new great observatories look like the direction that things are going to be going in with Louvoir, Habex, Origins, and, and Lynx. Uh, Rhino Thoughton, Throton, Rhino Throton. Uh, in the last video, it was mentioned that every million years, any evidence of alien visitors would be lost. How does that jive with the fossil record? So um, Adam was was referring to a piece of research that actually he had done with Gavin Schmidt called and called the Silurian hypothesis. And this was a question I actually did a video on this a couple of years ago, maybe. And this is this question, like if there was an advanced civilization here on Earth before us, would there be any evidence that we could tell? Would we find their structures? Would we find their machines? Would we find their fossils, etc? And it turns out that 
that according to the research, uh, it's actually very difficult for any anything to last any period of time on Earth. Now we absolutely have fossils, but actually the number, the conditions to make a fossil have to be very, very special. It's not just like every life form that's ever died is piled up somewhere in some graveyard. It's just a matter of digging deep enough to find them. You've got to have the thing die. It's got to be encased in the right kind of, of mud that protects it and stops any kind of decay. And then it has to be carried to a certain level of heat and then and so on. And so actually, um, it would be pretty difficult to find any evidence of any past civilization at the same time. And, and so it's not like, like, obviously, with fossils, there are plenty of examples of animals that lived in the past. But when you think about say, how many T Rexes existed in total throughout the history for the millions of years, the T Rexes were roaming about. And yet now we only have a handful of specimens, partial specimens that we know of, the vast majority of them are gone forever. And so that's the sort of direction that they were that they were thinking, but definitely buildings, monuments, technology, things like that, it would be worn down by planet Earth within hundreds of 1000s, definitely millions of years. So that's sort of the that's the path that that research is is taking. But um, I highly recommend you read, read that do a search for Siglerian hypothesis, and you can read the original uh, journal article that they did on this topic. And so if you doubt their research, then then you'll you can talk to them and tell them what you think. Um, VTC 1984, do you think the planetary systems with just a few planets are more common than ones like the solar system in the Milky Way? We have a small survey of 4000 exoplanets here. Maybe if we get closer. So the problem with the like right now, when we think of the the catalog of exoplanets that we know of, we know of one planet around this star, two planets around that star. And then most of the time, it's one planet around most stars. And that's only because the planets that we're finding are the easy ones, right? Um, you've got the most massive, most close planet orbiting its star that's orbiting within every 14 days, those are easy to find. When you think about the like the the composition of the solar system, you've got Mercury, which is small, so it will be tougher to find Venus, which is bigger, maybe easier to find Earth. It takes 365 days for Earth to go around the sun. And so if you want to observe the Earth, you've got to observe it for two, three separate periods of time. If you want to find um, Mars, right, it's teeny tiny small, and it takes longer, Jupiter takes what five years, five and a half years to go around the sun. So you need like 15 years to confirm its existence, Saturn, 30 years, maybe Jupiter takes 11 years, Saturn takes 30 years, right? At a certain point, then you need 100 years to to confirm that that a Saturn exists. So it's just going to take time constant observations over long periods of time to slowly add more and more planets to our understanding of what's in these various planetary systems. Think about Neptune, 
hundreds of years. It would take you like a thousand years to confirm that a star system has a Neptune-sized world orbiting around it. So, so we are a long way from being able to make those kinds of, those kinds of observations, but stay tuned. Um, let's see. Eureka uh, Roberto, in your opinion, should humanity spread life throughout the universe? I, it all depends on whether or not there is life in the universe already, right? So if, if there is n no life in the universe, and we somehow we're able to determine that there's no life in the universe. And so the only place that life formed in the entire universe is here on Earth. And we know that Earth is finite, that at some point the sun will warm up and, and wipe out all life on Earth. It would be really sad to know that there was life in the universe and then it disappeared. And, and that makes me, you know, I feel like life is really special, especially intelligent life. Um, and the universe is made better by having us in it. And I do think that if, if it determines, if we learn that there is nothing out there, that it's just rocks and gas and dust, then I think it's our job to preserve this very special um, evolution of intelligence here on here on Earth to keep it going in the universe for as long as possible. Like I said, I think a universe with intelligence is better than a universe without it. And so it's sort of our responsibility if we discover that it is, you know, if we find there's some aliens and they've already done the job, then, eh, <laughs> you know, we don't have to do anything. But if it does turn out to be that 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 we're that we're alone, then I think it's our responsibility to to spread life into the universe, keep the flame going. Um, A.V. Scott and Flower, what conversation or new piece of information impressed you the most about the American Astronomical Society meeting? Um, I really enjoyed, there was a lot of really good research on Starlink, and we've actually got a new video coming out on Friday about Starlink and sort of everything I learned about Starlink. And that was interesting because it was like, it's going to be a problem for astronomy. There's absolutely no question that Starlink is going to be uh, bad. There's going to be streaks, satellite streaks passing through images by a much greater number than, than ever before. And, and it's, and it's sad. But I don't know what the alternative is. I mean, that and it was interesting to sort of see people wrestling with that con that topic, right? Like on the one hand, we want to maintain the skies and make them as pristine as possible. And part of it is like, we're just so frustrated as astronomers at the light pollution that has already happened. I mean, the moon, right, the moon needs to go, but also just like the light pollution of cities has already stolen the skies from so many people on Earth. And now here's this new threat. And I think for a lot of astronomers, they're just, they're just so frustrated that the skies are disappearing. And this, and this moment where where all these new satellites are going to go off into space and, and take even more of the sky away is very frustrating. And yet at the same time, you know, here we are on the internet arguing about whether people should be able to have access to the internet. And that seems kind of rude. So, um, so it's going to be, it, it's interesting to see from my perspective, just how this whole thing is going to play out. 
I, I do hope, I mean, so far, the astronomers have, have been quite happy with the way SpaceX has been working with them, you know, they they haven't had to cajole them, they haven't had to threaten them, they haven't had to, to demand regulation from the government, like SpaceX has been, has been flexible and willing to try to solve this problem. But at the same time, they're going to still launch satellites, like they're not going to stop satellites going up into space, they are just going to keep rampaging until there are 40,000 satellites. And if it's not SpaceX, then it's going to be one one web. And if it's not them, it's going to be Amazon. And if it's not them, it's going to be the Starship Enterprise or the Death Star. Like you think the Death Star doesn't cause light pollution? It de I mean, obviously, and then it blows up your planet. But you know, when you've got the Starship Enterprise flying in space above your planet, like it's very bright, and reflective, and obnoxious to Earth based Federation astronomers that are just trying to take pretty pictures of the night sky. So so it's like, on the one hand, we love the beauty of the dark sky. And then on the other hand, we love the excitement of space exploration and space based infrastructure, and the two compete. So so that was I think the that was the underlying threads that I saw again and again, at the meeting. And uh, I just I, I kind of just enjoy watching people wrestle with complicated problems. And this is one. Dwayne Duval, uh, why so much focus on Mars? Shouldn't we focus on perfecting all the tech we need on the moon before even considering Mars? Seems obvious to me. So what am I missing? Well, I mean, the first thing is just that Mars is Mars, right? Like, like Mars is special. It's not the moon, it's not Mercury, it's not the death trap Venus, it has kind of the same length of day, it's got mountains and, and I don't know, regolith, it's got red soil, and you could walk around on it, and you could have the sunshine on your face, and it's got clouds and wind and, and it has a day length that's roughly similar to what we have on Earth, and it's got more gravity than we have uh, on the moon. So Mars has got a lot going for it. And I think you're absolutely right that the moon is close, the moon is safe. And if we want to do the absolute safest thing, we should practice, practice, practice on the moon until we've nailed every problem that we ever run into, and then start making that trip to Mars. But for a lot of people, that's, that's kind of that's not quick enough. That's not adventure enough. They want to, they want to get to Mars because it's Mars. And I think that I can't argue with that. I, I, I would love to see a human being setting foot on Mars. And while I would advocate more caution and care, a lot of them want to just go for it. And, you know, some of them are going to, uh, are going to die. So, so that's the downside is you, you go before you're ready, and you increase the number of risks, but humanity has done things before it's ready all the time. And sometimes it has paid off spectacularly well. And other times it has turned out horribly. And that's just kind of how human beings. That's how we roll. Um, 
Evertransit42, shouldn't our top priority be to figure out how to protect Earth from a cataclysmic impact? Is there anything more important? The chances of a cataclysmic impact with something from space is actually not that big. And in fact, uh, astronomers have already cataloged all of the uh, one plus meter objects that are out there, or one plus kilometer objects that are out there, the kinds of things that would that would cause an, an extinction level event for humanity. They've all been found, their orbits have been checked, and we're pretty certain that none of them are going to be a problem. Now there's uh, comets that could come out of nowhere and smash into us, but but really now they're moving to the smaller objects, the objects that are 100 meters bigger. And I would say within the next, I mean, you know, astronomers are taking this very seriously, and I would say within the next 20 years, they pretty much should have them all cataloged. I don't know if any of them are going to be able to be a risk. And, but just in general, and just pure numbers, um, even though an asteroid strike or a comet strike would be a very bad day for a large part of planet Earth, the chances of it happening are incredibly low. And so we have a lot of bigger issues that we can focus on. And I think that's just, although we have some close asteroid or we have the Chelyabinsk in 2013 that exploded above Russia to remind you that we are in this cosmic shooting gallery. And then there's all this freak out and some quick funding and then people stop panicking again and they just go on about their lives. So it's definitely on the list of to do items. Chris Hind, how does Starlink increase our odds of a Kessler syndrome? It actually doesn't. So Starlink has tons of problems, but a cataclysmic uh, chain reaction of space debris is not one of them. And the main reason is because the um, the altitude of these satellites is very low, like the Starlinks are flying at 550 kilometers. And so without any kind of thrusting, they'll return through the atmosphere within just a couple of years. Uh, in fact, like with the first batch of Starlinks, I think some of the thrusters on them didn't work. And they're just going to come right back to the, they're going to crash quickly. And so you you know, you don't really have to worry about the space debris from these low altitude satellites. It's the stuff that's higher. It's the stuff that's a 1000 kilometers stuff that's 2000 kilometers. Those will stick around for decades for hundreds of years. And, and in theory, you'll get, um, you know, you could get various catastrophic impacts and the debris from those impacts stays there for decades and hundreds of years and thousands of years. And so we actually want more of these low flying satellites and less of the high flying satellites. And a lot of the times, you know, you have high flying satellites like say GPS systems or weather satellites because you need one satellite to have enough of a perspective of planet Earth that it can cover a large area of detail. But if you have 42,000 satellites, they're all flying at fairly low altitudes, then they can do a lot of these jobs, they can be GPS satellites, they can be weather satellites, they can do you can have more satellite if you have more satellites, then you can do the same job closer to Earth. And you can minimize the risks of having these these cascades of of space debris. So in fact, I think that we're going to find as there's more low altitude constellations, some of the risks of space debris go away.
Christina Kirchner, you discount the power of angular momentum. Debris can be slung into higher orbits. Yeah, you there. We saw this with the Indian destruction of a satellite that they were able to kick pieces of debris into higher apogees than was originally anticipated. But of course, you get a higher apogee and that means you get a lower perigee as the as the um, as the debris is moving. And so it's still going through a pretty significant chunk of the Earth's atmosphere and will return to Earth within a reasonable time frame. Like you may get an extra two years than than what you had originally expected, but you're not going to get an extra thousand years the way you would with material that's say at a 2000, 3000, 5000 kilometer altitude, you know, the stuff at the geosynchronous orbit will never come down in millions of years. That stuff is a problem. Although also space is very big. So the I mean, the idea of I, I talked to a couple of people actually about the Kessler syndrome, and their feeling really is that it's not so much a single impact. Actually, no, we, we talked about this on the weekly space hangout. That's right. Um, the guest on the weekly space hangout was talking about this. So if you haven't already watched that, they talk about it quite a bit, that it's not a one time event, that it is a just an overall increase. I mean, there's already probably 250,000 pieces of debris up there that are bigger than two centimeters. And it's already a busy place. And so it's just a matter of the more debris there is, the harder it gets to space, the more wear and tear you get on your spacecraft, the more you've got to dodge around objects to be able to go where you want to go. And it's just a big pain. Uh, Dwayne Duvall, Starlink says Starlink should be sprayed with Vanta Black. So one of the latest batch of Starlink satellites has actually been sprayed with darkening materials, although they wouldn't explain exactly what had been done. Um, and so in, they're going to find out whether or not that actually does provide a darker satellite than um, than other, you know, than the rest of the Starlink constellation. But the problem is that these satellites, you know, you could make it darker in the visible spectrum, but you might make it brighter in the infrared spectrum because it's going to be retaining and then releasing more heat. So there's going to be a fairly tricky balance in play to try and figure out exactly the right way to to reduce the light that these Starlink satellites are giving off while at the same time have them do their job across and then also you know both the infrared astronomers and the visible light astronomers to be happy so all right we've reached the end of our hour so I think it's time to to wrap things up so just to give you a bit of a sneak preview of what's coming up uh, tomorrow, we've got my interview with David Kipping about whether or not aliens are watching us. Um, and really, it's about like how we would watch them. And so are we doing the kinds of things that we would detect ourselves doing? Um, we've got a new QA this week. It's going to be with uh, Jeff Faust from Space News. Uh, he was, you know, again, really knowledgeable about about spaceflight. So he's answered a pile of your questions. Um, on Friday, we're going to have my, <clears throat> my episode on Starlink. We've got a new episode of the weekly space hangout this week, and a new episode of astronomy cast on Friday, all about multi messenger astronomy, which I'm pretty excited about. So um, thanks, everyone. And of course, the telescope. Don't forget about this right here. Hold on, which one? There you go. There's Orion. There's uh, Pleiades, so we are uh, we're back in business with the new telescope. So when the skies, when the moon 
gets lost, we will be able to, uh, to do some more live uh, telescopery. And then we'll shift to a, a fairly regular schedule with regular guests and more telescopes and all that. But, you know, I'm just, I'm just figuring it all out still. So thanks, everyone, for watching. Thanks for the moderators who were uh, posting, reposting the questions up into the chat so that I can see that. I really appreciate it. Um, and I will see all of you next week. Thanks, everybody.